This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Whenever anyone says that they were first introduced to you via YouTube, you start making excuses of that wasn't really me, or I was young, something like that. So I'm, I'm pleased that that's how we discovered, because there's some other ones too. Uh, don't Google them, you'll be better off. For a while I had students uh, who had a Facebook page, I think it was titled Stuff Snell Said, which was always a sort of horrifying thing. And I would read some of these to my, to my, my wife and she would say, well, what did that mean in the context? Did that seem appropriate to you at the time? <laughs> uh, and you know, we've hired uh, permanent representation ever since. Uh, thanks so much for being here. It's a real pleasure to be with you in the Humanities program. Uh, and knowing what I know about the program, and particularly the very fine faculty and staff here, it's an honor to be able to, 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 to join you tonight and to be invited. Uh, you know, to folks like myself at the Templeton Honors College just down the road, continuing on with the great books tradition or a humane education in the milieu of contemporary higher ed sometimes feels like a fool's errand, or it certainly feels like you're on the losing side of trench warfare sometime. Uh, and so knowing that the humanities program here is, even for me, an ongoing encouragement, uh, and I'm just simply delighted to be able to participate uh, in this lecture with you this evening. So thank you very much. The lecture's title is The Terrible Covenant of Sloth. In what follows, I present a series of reflections, pieces of a puzzle for us to put together. Like puzzle pieces, each part relates to the whole, but not as premises relate to a conclusion, more as aspects of a question as things which perplex me and which I've put together in a certain way, uh, but wonder if you would piece together in the same way that I have or whether you would see it differently. The basic question that I'd like us to ponder is whether sloth or sloth, if you're old school, is more than a personal vice, more than something that you and I, or to be honest, our neighbor, might suffer, or whether sloth could be understood as deeply informing our cultural moment. I should note, too, that I'll not interpret sloth as laziness. I can't tell you how many friends of mine, hearing that I'm lecturing on sloth, say the joke of, well, we'd love to come, you know, if we can get up the energy. I'm not going to interpret sloth as laziness. Rather, following Joseph Pieper, and in keeping with both patristic and medieval reflection, I'll understand sloth to be a loss or a failure of magnanimity, a failure to desire and will the fullness of our good what Peter refers to as a perverted humility, which rejects friendship with God because that friendship just makes too many claims upon us. It just asks for too much. So rather than being magnanimous or great-souled, we'd rather be free. That's what sloth is. Rather than being great-souled, we'd rather be free. Laziness is perhaps a manifestation of sloth, but so too is busyness. Though either way, you have it. My question then is not whether our culture is lazy. Indeed, I, want to, I, I suspect that our cultural moment fundamentally isn't lazy. If anything, we're committed to a world of total work. Instead, the question is whether or not our cultural moment despises limits and the order of responsibility. So let's begin with the first piece, with power. Remember, puzzle pieces, not inferences leading to a conclusion, but pieces to put together. So the first piece is power. We all dwell within a clearing of meaning. The various moments of our experience occur for us within a space and against the background of meanings and values that we hold dearly. 
Unlike a dispassionate camera recording successive events, we all face the world from a particular stance, fitting the, that, the events of our life into a space of meaning in which we live and move and have our being. Now, of course, we're not alone in that space. Others are there with us, usually going before us to clear the way, subsequently giving that space to us, the way a family does or the way a religious tradition does. And perhaps even whole historical epics can share a space, whole peoples residing in a similar space together. Or so says Romano Guardini, an influential Catholic thinker of the past century, someone with, if you're not familiar with, you really should be. He claims that in the course of history, now one, now another element of existence appears to acquire special significance. That is, for a given epoch, the whole range of human experience exhibits or begins to exhibit a certain direction or horizon. As he sees it, the ultimate goal of antiquity was to find the model of the well-formed man. While the Middle Ages experienced with particular force man's relation to the transcendent God, borrowing his language throughout. The modern age, Guardini continues, with its vast array of intellect and technique, grasps at the world, interpreting existence as power over nature. Ever more daringly, man takes things into his possession, takes things as possessions, and is possessed by them. Yet, he continues, the modern age is essentially over, even though its influence persists. He's writing this in the 50s. So while the last consequence of the modern age are still being drawn, the essence of that age no longer determines the character of the historical epoch now beginning. On the one hand, he says, modern power is victorious. Everywhere man's power is in unbroken ascendancy, perhaps just entering into its strength, still adolescent in a sense. On the other hand, he continues, power has grown questionable. Once, progress and the technique and technology powering the advance of progress was an unquestioned goal. But this belief, he says, is growing shaky, which is in itself, he says, an indication that a new epoch is beginning. When the deep beliefs of one epoch are begun to be questionable, it's an indication that a transition is afoot. He says that a hesitation, perhaps a momentary pause, lurks in public consciousness, an inchoate sense that our whole attitude towards power is wrong, dangerous, or in his word, demonic. That always makes everyone comfortable when you use the word demonic. Where's he going now? That's what the YouTube video is about. <laughs> Unlike energy, he says, power entails will or choice or initiative. Power requires, he says, both energies capable of changing the reality of things and an awareness of those energies the will to establish specific goals and to launch and direct energies towards those goals. Nature has energy but not power, he says, for power requires spirit, the extrication from mere nature to the world of freedom. Nature has energy, persons have power. Nature operates with necessity, persons with responsibility. There is thus no power without persons, and any attempt to depersonalize power is false. More. Any use of power violating persons, their dignity or responsibility, is, as Guardini puts it, demonic. Now, in Hebrew and Christian scripture, the tensions between nature, freedom, power, and the demonic emerge in the very first pages, in the beginning. God exercises power by speaking the world into existence. Let there be. And then he declares that that being is good. And because God communicates his own goodness, the earth itself is ready for and can receive God's own breath, his spirit, and the earth hosts man, male and female. Now in the story, 
whether you take it as scripture or just a moment of wisdom literature from the past is, is, is not for me. Adam does not, in the story, Adam does not possess the garden. Rather, God has given it to him, and the garden hosts Adam. God gives to Adam his very self and gives to Adam a place for that self. Gifted with spirit, God's breath, Adam has power, like God. By God's command, women and men are to oversee all that swims, flies, creeps, even the whole earth. In fact, it seems as though God has exercised his own power to order and fill the world through our power, asking us to complete or perfect the work which he began. As the Catechism of the Church explains, God is the sovereign master of his plan, but to carry it out, he also makes use of creatures' cooperation. God grants his creatures the dignity of acting on their own. To human beings, God gives even the power of freely sharing in his providence by entrusting them with the responsibility of subduing the earth and having dominion over it. God thus enables men, this is still the catechism, to be intelligent and free causes in order to complete the work of creation, to perfect its harmony. In the words of Genesis, God places humans in the garden with the power to work and keep it, to govern and to fill it. Now, we're tempted, I suspect, to pivot our attention immediately to the govern or subdue or control mandate. We think of that as often being the central mandate. Not so. The working and keeping, or perhaps a better translation, tending and watching over, indicates responsibility rather than autonomy. As Merrill Westfall describes it, the human at creation is singled out as the creature who alone is responsible. He alone is accountable. And so responsibility and power go hand in hand. No one is responsible for something they cannot direct or control. And if we have responsibility, we must then have power. Our very godlikeness consists in this capacity for power, Guardini says. But not just power in an undifferentiated way, ordered and responsible power. Power does not launch us into the domain of pure freedom. Rather, it links, tethers, and entangles us in layer after layer of responsibility. Responsibility to God, from whom power is received and to whom it is offered. To ourselves, in the task of becoming co-laborers and cooperators. To others, in solidarity supporting the charge which they also have received. To the garden, the place that we have inherited from our Divine Father a place with its own structure and its own integrity, which we are to name, oversee, and develop in its perfection and in its completion. God makes the human, Adam, from the dirt, Adamah, in order to perfect the dirt. We're from the dirt and for the dirt, with power and responsibility to complete and perfect creation, and in so doing, to perfect and complete ourselves. Now, if we continue on in the scriptures, we find immediately the shirking of that responsibility. For instance, confronted by God after their sin, Adam and Eve immediately blame others, violating their personal responsibility. Turn the page. Cain kills Abel, a brother whom he was to keep, whom he was to watch over, for whom he was responsible, and thus moral responsibility is abrogated. Turn the page again and find Noah a man righteous in a corrupt time, but who, when warned by God of imminent danger, warns no one, proclaims to no one the news, does not even pray for them, unlike Abraham who intervenes in a responsible way for Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Noah fails his collective and social responsibility. Turn one more page and, found, and find Babel, the place of transgression against ontological responsibility, where we transgress the limits of order by our storming of heaven. 
In the beginning, we were given responsibility, but we wantonly violated our personal, moral, social, and ontological husbandry, prompting God to begin again, if you turn the page, with Abraham, a responsible man. We are powerful, and this is good. It's our inheritance, and it's our perfection. But we failed that gift by shirking responsibility. But we didn't lose power as a result. We maintained power, but in a disordered, or as Guardini puts it, demonic way. The second puzzle piece, then, the demonic. Perhaps you're familiar with the fiction of Cormac McCarthy, who's now best known for No Country for Old Men and the Road. If, if you know McCarthy, you know his fiction is almost overwhelmingly violence-ridden and despair-filled. But of all his terrors, yeah, please, please come in. Of all his terrors, I know of none more awful than the character of Judge Halden in the novel Blood Meridian or The Evening Redness in the West, which is a recounting of John Joel Glanton's gang of bounty hunters who slaughter, rape, scalp, maim, and desecrate their way across the Southwest. Brutality pervades throughout the book, or in the words of the book itself, war endures, grinding everything to oblivion before that ultimate trade. Early in the novel, the protagonist, nameless, identified throughout only as the kid, runs away from his drunken father, joining Captain Glanton to hunt Apache, but killing anyone that they happen to come across. They scalp everyone and then, and then sell, it, uh, sell the scalps for, for, for bounty. While Glanton is the formal leader, however, it is another member of the gang, a Judge Halden, who leads them like some perverse Moses through the American desert. The judge is a horrible figure. One gang member describes his first encounter with the judge. Having spent all of their gunpowder, they're in flight with a band of Apaches in hot pursuit. As the book says, there was no place to run and no place to hide. As they flee, they come across the judge. He's not yet in the gang. This is the first time that he's met him. They, they, and, and I'm just quoting here and there. I won't really tell you where. They come across the judge on his rock, there in that wilderness by his single self. There is only one rock visible in the entire wasteland, an oddity causing some in the gang to suspect that he'd brung it with him, to mark him out of nothing at all. Appearing in the vast desert without any apparent cause, you couldn't tell where he'd come from. He's without horse. He's without canteen. He's just sitting on this rock like he's been expecting us. When Glanton informs Halden of their situation, Judge Halden takes charge calmly leading the men behind him like the disciples of a new faith to refine their own gunpowder, to make it out of the resources that they have in the desert. The Apaches close in, but it was a butchery, with that queer powder bestowing a kind of power. It was sharp shooting all around and not a misfire in the batch. From that moment on, Halden and Glanton have a secret commerce, a terrible covenant, and anyone under Glanton's charge is then covenanted to the judge who claims them all as his property. Now, just as odd as his appearance in the desert, the entire history of Judge Halden is bizarre. In fact, he seems not to have any history at all. At one point, the gang returns to Chihuahua to receive payment for their trophies of war. As each of them go to the public baths to watch, wash away the gory remnants of their exploits, they descend one by one into the waters, all tattooed, branded, sutured, some deformed, fingers missing, eyes, their foreheads and arms stamped with letters and numbers as if they were articles requiring inventory. Each and every one, each and every member of the gang bears history in their body in some visible way, a tattoo, a scar, a criminal's brand, except for the judge, 
Not only is he described as being completely childlike and completely hairless, but as he disrobes to enter into the thin gruel of blood and filth, he reveals no marks at all, no traces of any past reality. He is bare and baby-like. He seems, in fact, to belong to no one except to himself, bound to no customs, laws, or ways of being other than those he has given to himself. He is judge, but never judged. Now, despite lacking history, Judge Halden is portrayed as the most educated man in the territory. With knowledge of geology, geography, natural, natural history, myth, literature, languages, he discourses eloquently on a variety of subjects, and his authority over his interlocutors is absolute. He carries a notebook with him, faithfully, where he sketches plant and animal life, geological finds, artifacts from earlier civilizations. But very oddly, he often destroys that which he has just sketched or what he has captured in his notebook. For instance, after sketching some ancient cave drawings, he scratches them off the wall and out of existence. At another time, he sketches various pieces of armor and weaponry left centuries before by the Spanish and then destroys the artifacts. He took up the little foot guard and turned it in his hand and studied it, and then he crushed it into a ball of foil and pitched it into the fire. He gathered up the artif other artifacts and cast them all into the fire. And he seemed much satisfied with the world, as if his counsel had been sought at its creation. For the judge, then, knowledge is a kind of hunt. He captures reality in his notes, and in so doing, snuffs out its independent being. All being, personal and impersonal, is treated this way, as something to possess and discard. A pedophile, the judge collects children as playthings before murdering them, taking their scalps for trophies and dumping their lifeless bodies to rot in the desert heat. At another point, the judge makes a pet of a mentally handicapped man, leading him on a leash, seemingly for no other reason than to best or better Glanton, who had claimed power to tame any animal who eats. Now, at one point, Judge Halden explains himself, articulating his reason for capturing and erasing any reality not under his direct control. And I think his response or explanation is haunting. He says, whatever exists, whatever in creation exists without my knowledge exists without my consent. These anonymous creatures may seem little or nothing in the world, yet the smallest crumb can devour us. Any smallest thing beyond yon rock out of men's knowing. Only nature can enslave men, and only when the existence of each last entity is routed out and made to stand naked before him, will he properly be suzerain of the earth. Asked the definition of a suzerain, he answers it to be a special kind of ruler, one ruling even when there are other rulers, one whose authority countermands other judgments. The judge's authority is such that no other autonomous life or authority is permitted. He says, nothing must be permitted to occur save by my dispensation, even if that means killing or molesting everything under his rule. The freedom of birds, for instance, he describes as an insult. In the very end, the kid, the nameless kid, resists the judge. McCarthy says that perhaps it was the memory of his drunken father's reading of poets whose names now are lost. For those of us in education, I guess that's the hope we have. But the kid's susceptibility to the judge weakens over time. All of the other members of the gang appear joined in their terrible covenant. But the kid alone, despite his own atrocities, offers some help and mercy to his fellows, even refusing at one point to, kill, to murder the judge who is, who, who's, who is stalking him and hunting him. The judge knows of the kid's flickering remainder of decency, stating, I'd have loved you like a son, except you alone were mutinous. 
you alone reserved in your soul some corner of clemency. Judge Halden simply cannot abide this, must reassert his status as suzerain, and murders the kid in an outhouse. He rose up smiling and gathered him into his arms against his immense and terrible flesh before the judge proclaims his victory over the world, saying, he will never die, he will never die. Now this is, as I understand Guardini, the demonic, a refusal of responsibility, not merely a shirking or neglect, but as sovereignty exercised without regard for the truth of things, an imposition of will on the gifts of nature. Responsibility, Guardini claims, accepts each thing's being what it is, obeying and serving God in part by watching over what God has made. The judge, however, refuses to accept anything's being what it is, seen in reality only a challenge to his own sovereignty, a truth resisting his own power. The third piece. Let's move from power and demonic to sloth, akedia or achedia. I'm going to explain sloth in two forms. The first form will be a hatred of responsibility. The second form will be what's, what Aquinas calls sadness about the divine good. In this third part, we're going to talk about hatred of responsibility. So sloth in two forms. Both of these forms, I think, agree with Pieper's account. They are rejection of our highest goods because we don't want the obligations placed upon us by those goods. Achidia, who a vagaries of Ponticus, a 4th century Egyptian monk, describes as the noonday demon, strikes in the tedium of the afternoon. I think academics suffer from, from, from sloth particularly. It's 3 o'clock, there's a stack of grading on your desk, and, and anything is interesting other than that grading. Your papers are fantastic, but 3 o'clock in the afternoon, anything other than those papers is interesting. Even other work that you don't want to do. As students, you do this too. You have a paper due and suddenly you need to iron. <laughs> Maybe that's just my own version of sloth. Right? You know, pillowcases need to be ironed right now because I have a deadline. Here's what Evagrius says, he, and he describes this as the most troublesome of the demonic thoughts. Here's how he describes it. Sloth causes the monk continuously to look at the windows and forces him to step at the cell and to gaze at the sun to see how far it is from the ninth hour. This is where you click your email, and click your email, and click your email, hoping that someone will have sent you something so you know you exist. And as you go out to check the slow progress of time, you look around here and there, seeing whether any of your brethren is near. Moreover, the demon sends him hatred against the place, against life itself, and against the work of his hands. Sloth is not laziness, although the term does in, t does in time come to mean mere activity, inactivity. Rather, sloth reveals frustration and hate, a disgust at place and life itself, a destructive hate of whatever particular good, whatever task, is given to the monk by God to perform. In Achadia, the monk longs for a better place because he abhors what is there and fantasizes about what is not. In sloth, we abhor what is there. We abhor what is. We abhor limits, place, order, being, and the responsibility that comes from the truth of being. Now, rather than lazing about, the slothful are often in a frenzy of activity. Now this, now that, in their disgust for the work of a tent of watching over given to them by God. More than indolence, sloth rejects the burden of the good, rejects the burden of work. Loving self and autonomy more than the good, sloth refuses the weight of responsibility, which comes from living in an ordered creation. 
<clears throat> now, of course, like the judge, the sloth will find reality utterly bereft of meaning, without a truth to tend or to oversee or to perfect. For the slothful, the world is empty, and our roving gaze finds nothing to solid upon which to rest, nothing true to serve. In that context, responsibility cannot but seem arbitrary, oppressive, and even an offensive to our freedom. Excuse me, as something to be scratched out, broken, or mastered. Lars Svensson describes the slothful as having the experience of everyday life as a prison. Now that sounds very much like the slothful monk, doesn't it? Everyday life is a prison. The monk is looking out of his cell constantly as time crawls and his hatred of the work grows and as his hatred of the place and the reality into which he is thrown becomes overwhelming. As he wishes to destroy anything whose reality stands implacably as a reminder of his own finitude, boundedness, and dependence. That's sloth in its first form, hatred of being. The fourth beast is sloth in its second form, sadness. While Evagrius articulates sloth as a hatred against place and life, Aquinas explains Achadia as a sadness at the divine good and an aversion to acting. Sadness at the divine good and an aversion to acting. As Aquinas explains, the divine good at which sloth feels sorrowful is in fact communion with God. Sloth is a sadness at being linked in loving, intimate union. Now this is very strange, since communion with God, according to Aquinas, is our happiness and is our fulfillment. Sloth, thus, is a rejection of our own happiness. It's a sense of sadness at our own joy. How very strange is that? It's fundamentally intelligible. It rejects the purpose of meaning. Now, why would anyone reject and feel disgust at the possibility of their own fulfillment? Why would anyone be in the state of loathing their own good? Now, this is odd, but perhaps not unusual. We do it. Sloth resists friendship with God because of the burdens of commitment that such a friendship and the concomitant transformation of ourselves would require. In the love of freedom, rather than the love of God, one is saddened at the costs of friendship with God, and our ultimate good is in fact thought to be contrary to our own self. As Rebecca DeYoung explains, in friendship there is not only an investment of time, but an investment of self that is required for the relationship to exist and to flourish. This is difficult. Even more difficult are the accommodations of identity, from the perspective of individual freedom, to be in this relationship which will change me and alter me. You see this a lot in a mitigated form in the rejection of romance, yes? If I become the sort of person who can enter into this marriage, I will lose myself, so better not to enter into the marriage. But rejecting communion with God so as to maintain a grasp of one's own freedom or free self does not actually result in freedom. Rather, says Aquinas, it cripples action, or he says it immobilizes the person. Well, how so? Now, answering that requires grasping who and what we are as persons. Now, I'd suggest that what we are, first and foremost, is desiring and loving creatures, even before we are thinking animals. We desire first, and all of our actions reveal our soul's thirst. I had to have one line from Augustine when I was here. <laughs> all of our actions reveal our soul's thirst. Now, in a way that we do not explicitly understand, we reach out beyond ourselves in a self-transcending thrust towards the real, the true, the good, and the beautiful. But we reach farther than we can grasp. We want more than we can obtain. And there is an unquenchable longing for more, for fullness, for the ultimate. Now, particular desires for this or that good, right, for this or that satisfaction, 
Particular desires are meaningful only in light of the background and fundamental desire for the ultimate. And particular desires never exhaust that fundamental desire. When you get this or that particular good, your des desire does not dissipate. The fundamental desire for the unquenchable, the soul's thirst, maintains itself and sometimes is even extended. Now imagine a being lacking this grasp or thrusting tendency. Would anything for evoke their desire? So imagine a being who did not have a fundamental desire for utter fulfillment. Would anything be able to evoke their interest in their desire? If there was, for instance, no overarching desire for the good, food and sex and money and reputation and fame would not interest us at all. We would be utterly indifferent to their allure. Now, if that's true, and if our ultimate desire is for communion with God, then the slothful have no reference point against which all of life has meaning, or at least they've rejected the reference point against which all of life has meaning, against which every other desire is intelligible. Sadness about this ultimate good, then, means that all meaning, all choices, and all particular desires are experienced without their reference point and have, and are experienced as having, no meaning. They, they float free of a reference. Vertigo sets in, and they sink into nothing. Rejecting the divine good evacuates purpose and ability as it jettisons the end of the action, the purpose of the action, which is friendship with God, leaving only our own self-love although a self-love which is at odds with the condition of its own fulfillment. In other words, a self-love which is then pur without purpose because even self-love lacks the reference point against which self-love can be meaningful. One commentator puts it this way, Achadia is a profound withdrawal into self. Action is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself, as the response to a prior love that calls us, enables our action and makes it possible. It is seen instead as an uninhibited seeking of personal satisfaction in the fear of losing something. The desire to save one's freedom at any price reveals, in reality, a deeper enslavement to the self. That's sloth in the two forms. So we've had a conversation about power, which is our image of God, but can become demonic if not ordered towards the truth of being and ordered towards service of God. Okay? We've had discussion of Judge Halden as, I think, a somewhat memorable figure of the demonic, or I remember him at least. <laughs> if you read the book, you would do. Sort of look around after you've read the book. You see someone bald, you see me coming, and you run away because you think it's him. <laughs> and then we've had sloth in two forms. The first is a repugnance of the good, and the second is an aversion to God. The last and final piece, a reflection on our own age, which is where my question comes in. In the first reflection, I suggested that power was given to us by God, and thus we had the responsibility to tend, oversee, perfect, and complete the world. In, parts, in, the, in the last two parts, sloth is examined as a hatred of the work that God has given to us, as well as sadness about communion with God. Now, as I reflect on this, I see that the two responsibilities, first, attending to the truth of being, and second, serving God, are correspondingly rejected by the two forms of achadia, right? Repugnance over the truth of being and sadness about God. If Gardini is right, then sloth is in fact demonic because it, Im because Im it imposes the power of self rather than the humility of the power of servitude. If that's right, then Judge Holden is the most slothful person around. Now, what about us? Is it possible that sloth might be the vice of our own epic? Remember Gardini's notion that various epics had, had a similar horizon. Could sloth not be merely a private vice but a cultural direction? that Judge Halden is with us, the leader of our own little gang in the desert. So that's the question that I want you, us to think about, and I'd be happy to know your answer. 
Is sloth our great temptation? In Veritatis Splendor, John Paul II identifies two forms of contemporary disintegration or severing in moral life. First, is the rupture between freedom and truth, second, between faith and morality. The first, freedom and truth, is a philosophical rupturing and abandons freedom to the subjectivist, subjectivistic choice without guidance from the truth of being. The second, or theological rupture, renders faith extrinsic and unrelated to action and moral principle divorced from faith. Faith, on the other hand, becomes merely a matter of the heart, a matter of heaven and the private interior life, with nothing to propose about the ultimate meaning of action. So on the one hand, the late Pope asks, if we have sundered freedom from truth and choice from responsibility, that is, if we are violating the work given to us by God in a form of sloth, as I would put the question. So, in other words, is the first sundering sloth in the first form? If the first responsibility is to tend the work responsibly, and the first form of sloth is hatred of the limits that reality places upon us, then is this sundering of freedom from truth the first form of sloth in a different articulation? On the other hand, if we reject or sunder the relationship of faith and morality, then have we removed the hope of communion from the trajectory of action, thereby rendering the action fundamentally arbitrary, directionless, meaningless, and slothful in the second sense. If you know that encyclical, you know that near the beginning, the, the exchange with the rich young ruler is given, and the rich young ruler says he's, he's kept the laws, but what's he supposed to do to have eternal life? And John Paul II interprets that as morality being concerned and, con and considering not merely rule following, but with the ultimate purpose of existence. Morality is not just br not breaking the rules. Morality is about the sort of person we can become and the overarching trajectory of action. Sloth in the second form is when the overarching trajectory of action becomes vitiated and nothing is left. So the second form of responsibility, which is to seek communion and service to God, has a second corresponding form of sloth, which is sadness at the communion with God, which seems to me to be awfully similar to the second divorce that John Paul II identifies in Veritatis Splendor. In other words, in Veritatis Splendor, are we seeing sloth in its two forms articulated as the temptations of the contemporary cultural moment? A repugnance of order, Judge Halden's Achadia, demands the violation of things as an act of final emancipation. By refusing to acknowledge the weight of God's glory, things lose their density and become bleached out or thin. Remember Judge Halden's phrase that the freedom of birds insults? And thus the height of revolt against God is to scratch out and destroy the truth of being around us. Now we're tempted, I think, now to consider the world as, in Judge Halden's terms, standing naked before us. Heidegger would phrase this as standing reserve. As, the world is, is, as if the world is an undifferentiated set of resources awaiting our use and having no re reality other than their usefulness to us. Rather than having the status of creatures full of God's weight and with their own integrity, things are just there, standing at attention before our desires, waiting to be led around on a leash like a pet. Things of the world have become objects distanced and alienated from us problems to overcome, some sort of mastery, method, technology, or technique. Things are thus under our judgment, waiting to be captured in a sketch and then cast aside. If we are not bound by the things, but they by us, what limits our use of them other than our own will? In what way can our desires be ordered so as to respect the integrity of things when their meaning is determined by our whims? 
Now, John Paul II warned repeatedly against an irrational account of freedom and the violence lurking behind it, teaching that crimes of life would be justified in the name of freedom. We're not so different from Judge Halden when our system, this is a quote from John Paul II, we're like Judge Halden when our system no longer recognizes and respects its essential link to the truth. Out of a desire to emancipate itself from all forms of tradition and authority, the person ends up by no longer taking as the sole and indisputable point of reference for his own choices the truth about good and evil, but only his subjective and changeable opinion, or indeed his own selfish, selfish interest in win. When misunderstood autonomy governs our life, it is all but inevitable that the dignity of others must be rejected. For everyone else, like the kid, is a competitor to our unchecked sovereignty, this terrible covenant. Not only against the physical world, although that too, but also against other persons and ourselves. For in sloth, everything is bleached out and without resistance to our frightful autonomy. All that remains is the power, but without real direction. Guardini's language means that all that remains is the demonic. As Michael Hanby suggests, articulating his version of uh, his, his story of where we find ourselves, such culture assumes that our lives are innately and intrinsically meaningless without the constant stream of stimulation and distraction, a stream inevitably subject to the law of diminishing returns. This nullity or nothingness on the side of the subject, right, so my nothingness without the distractions, this nullity on the side of the subject is matched by a similar knotting or nothingness in the world. So a nullity on the side of the subject and nothingness on the part of the world. For latent in this, in, in this assumption is a denial of form, the denial of objective beauty, or a true order of goods that naturally and of themselves compels our interest. As a consequence, according to this cultural logic, this is still handy, all such choices can only be indifferently related to one another. None is intrinsically good or bad, and indeed, no good approaches that of cho choice itself. Hence, most citizens of the modern world, of the modern West, almost of necessity, live lives of profound fragmentation and internal contradiction. It's handy. Finding the world as nothing and ourselves as unchecked, we consume ourselves and all other creatures. To be free as we wish in sloth requires hatred of being, even hatred of life itself, just as a vagarious warm. An action becomes crippled or pointless. As John Paul II recognized, this encourages the culture of death, creating and consolidating actual structures of sin which go against life. And as he puts it, the moral conscience thus, both social and individual, is today subjected to an extremely serious and mortal danger. In this twofold nihilism, where can be double nothingness, and nothing, that I am nothing without distraction, world cannot actually compel me or interest me because it's also nothing. In this twofold nihilism, both the human soul and the world are bereft of the plenitude of God's goodness and beauty. And thus, we find ourselves fundamentally revealed as bored and lacking desire, fundamentally convinced of the sense that nothing is worth desiring, precisely why the monk hated his place and why Aquinas identified the slothful as having a crippling or an immobility of action. Things are pointless. Judge Halden insists on his jurisdiction, remember, finding every creature an object of his judgment. Nothing is allowed freedom or integrity, and no creature is acknowledged worth is acknowledged as having worth because sustained by God's love. The kid's resistance against that covenant is futile. The judge hunts him, embraces him in a grasp of death, and scratches him out like so many creatures before. Are we the judge? 
Do we live in a time of sloth? Rather than causing delight and comfort, is the truth of being and of communion with God thought repugnant to our autonomy? Do we insist that we are suzerains, rulers countermanding all other laws? Our limits of body, limits of sexuality, limits of death, limits of life, are these obstacles to overcome or do they token and reveal the graciousness of being? Do we scratch out creation, especially the creation which is most weak and fragile, fearing that anything outside of our control insults us and threatens our freedom? Do we sense that friendship with God requires too much, would compel too much in its obligations, and so resist that and thus become mobilized? Can we avoid the culture of death, or does it hunt us, asserting its control, seeking our embrace, claiming covenant over us? Some resisted Judge Halden, just a few it seems. They attempted fidelity. They guarded clemency in some small corner of their souls, and they were stalked and hunted. Are we? Thank you very much.